today is the uh, fourth day of our summer seven-day session. It's the 12th of January 2021. And we're just going to pick up where we left off, uh, reading in Swampland Flowers, the letters and lectures of Zen Master Da Hui, translated by Christopher Cleary. An ancient worthy said, Fools remove objects but don't obliterate mind. The wise wipe out mind without removing objects. I'll just stop here and go into this, this statement by Darwei because there's a lot to it. Um, he's, he's talking here really about, about renunciation which is an important aspect of entering the path. And when, when somebody thinks about aspiration, especially uh, renunciation as a beginner, you may think um, that it's our ordinary lives, um, conventional reality, that is the problem. Uh, stuff and people. And that... that um, Renunciation involves um, giving up our things, um, leaving our relationships, our job or career, um, not having possessions and so forth. Um, but this is really quite mistaken. And I'd like to read a, um, something from that I wrote in a notebook on one of on a retreat um, quite some time ago, and it's from a book about um, Mahamudra um, practice, and it's the book is called Pointing Out the Great Way. The the author of the book is Dan Brown. He says, renunciation is not an outward but an inward action. It means primarily that one uses the objects of the five senses but does not depend on them or become attached to them. The opposite of this is what is called in Tibetan hairy renunciation. And this hairy is um, like a hairy ape. Um, I'm not quite sure why it's called hairy renunciation, um, but there it is. Hairy renunciation, referring to the sudden outward abandoning of the pleasures of life, owing to a sudden passion to renounce what he thinks to be samsara, someone might abandon all belongings and escape to a mountain retreat only to return a week or two later feeling very discouraged and weak. Such renunciation is generally insincere and really, really lasts for more than a short time. Um, when I was a receptionist at the Zen Centre, Rochester, from time to time um, I would get a call, um, usually if not always from a young man, who would say, I want to be a monk, can I come and be a monk? 
and um, we we was gently um, pushed pushed such people to just come to a workshop first and try the center out because generally speaking that that desire wasn't based on any anything um, uh, any any kind of experience of what that might be like it was very much more based on aversion to um, present circumstances and that's not that's not renunciation that's the other side of of attachment of course he continues attachment is the inability to separate oneself from something or someone and is also giving all of one's energy to satisfying a desire taking it as an ultimate goal this is what is, has to be abandoned in relations with people detachment means realizing the truth of impermanence and the non-ultimate nature of human relationships having developed such detachment one should be happy to be with others but at the same time be able to adapt to changing circumstances very important point it's not about abandoning all our relationships but but um, abandoning that stickiness that can be so often there where we we want people to stay the way they are or, or stay where they are and yet every single meeting in this world ends in parting We, people get sick they change they move and of course ultimately all of us we die so separation is built into relationships genuine renunciation is never an impulsive act but rather a slow transformation in the configuration of mental factors comprising the mental continuum and the karmic actions based on these. It's rather a, a technical way of um, saying that um, renunciation is based on, on inner change, gradual inner change. Renunciation is the outcome of a natural process, the accumulation of many moment-to-moment -moment decisions to abandon and take up non-virtue and virtue, respectively. He's quoting some, some text, and, and he says this, abandon and take up non-virtue and virtue, respectively. Renouncing non-virtue is like emptying a water bucket drop by drop rather than pouring its contents out all in one go. Um, Brown's pointing here to um, character work, although in Zen there's this strong um, emphasis on, on sudden awakening. Um, this has to do with insight and must be followed up, preceded and, and uh, followed up by uh, character work which is um, gradual we, we know this that um, uh, changing our habits happens through through persistent effort bit by bit 
Um, just, as, just as our habits are formed by many micro decisions that we make, choices that we make, so changing habits requires a similar kind of a, um, uh, gradual uh, process. So when, when, um, when we have these dreams, uh, fantasies about um, leading radically s simpler lives um, with fewer responsibilities, fewer material needs and so forth, um, probably if they haven't happened already, uh, we're probably not quite ready for them yet. You could say that when we become simpler, um, our lives become simpler. It's an evolution that happens. Just as a footnote before we leave um, um, this um, pointing out the Great Way text, uh, Brown also says, uh, which I think is a, it's a useful thing, uh, meditation uh, begins as an attitude, not as a formal sitting practice. It grows out of a deep desire to know, a deep desire to understand, to to um, Realize Buddha nature. A little bit more on renunciation. Uh, this time uh, from Master Xin Yin. At the core of the Mahayana teachings are two related ideas, bodhicitta and renunciation. The Sanskrit bodhicitta can be translated as the mind of aspiration to bodhi, enlightenment, for the sake of all sentient beings. Thus, giving rise to bodhicitta also means that one gives rise to great compassion. Renunciation is the aspiration to depart from affliction and the cycle of birth and death. Without bodhicitta and renunciation, it is difficult to practice the Mahayana path. They are like two wheels of a bicycle. Lacking either wheel, the bicycle cannot move, but with both wheels in proper alignment, the vehicle can move forward smoothly. Similarly, in one who has aroused compassion as well as the wish to end the cycle of birth and death, the two aspirations work together like the wheels of a bicycle. The mind of great compassion, bodhicitta, also leads to the great vow to help sentient beings cross the sea of suffering. Yet, Having such a vow requires that one also renounce attachment to sentient existence. So one generates renunciation at the same time 
that they uh, generate bodhicitta. Instead of flowing along in the endless stream of birth and death and getting caught in the whirlpool of suffering, one chooses the way of the Buddha with the wish that all sentient beings do the same. This is renunciation. The Parinirvana Sutra and the Avatamska Sutra talk about the need to arouse bodhicitta as a means to attain Buddhahood, but can people cannot do this when they are burdened with vexations. In other words, it, it, you can't separate these two out because in order to practice um, uh, bodhicitta, um, one needs to be um, less burdened with our own issues, you could say. Another, another way, way this is something is sometimes um, uh, expressed is you can't save somebody who's drowning if you're drowning yourself. The Avatamska Sutra also says that those who give rise to bodhicitta will eventually attain Buddhahood. The Sutra of Complete Enlightenment says that sentient beings are already endowed with Buddhahood. But if that's so, why aren't we all Buddhas? It is because we are burdened with ignorance and vexation, suffering. How is it that the Avatamska Sutra says that once bodhicitta is aroused, we will aroused, we will eventually reach Buddhahood? Because in giving rise to bodhicitta, we take the first step toward Buddhahood. However, without generating this intention, no matter how hard we practice, Enlightenment and Buddhahood will be remote. Since we have come here to practice, we already have a compassionate mind. But after arousing a mind to practice, people sometimes fall into wrong views or their practice becomes unstable and inconsistent. So, one day we give rise to bodhicitta and renunciation and the next day we have forgotten all about them. Having wrong views can mean our mind has been turned by greed and seeking, and false renunciation can mean that we are acting out of aversion to this world. We can inspire to Buddhahood, but become greedy in seeking that state, and with false renunciation we are perhaps doing it to escape from the world. Both attitudes are mistakes. It comes back to, to these, these, these um, poisons blind passions. We, we may have um, positive, lofty aspirations, but then those very aspirations kind of get hijacked either by greed, a desire for to, to um, find ease and, and clarity and enlightenment, or aversion, our tendency to try to escape the, the struggles and um, difficulties of, of uh, our lives. Just a little bit more from this passage 
he talks um, a little bit about the four great vows, the vows that we chant, that are um, common to all of the Mahayana, uh, at least the, the East Asian Mahayana traditions. These are the four great vows that we recite daily to deliver innumerable sentient beings, to sever all vexations, to master all Buddha-dharma, and to accomplish Buddhahood. That's sort of a summary of them, slightly different wording to ours. But this does not mean just chanting these vows. It means making them an integral part of our lives. For the first vow, delivering sentient beings, we have bodhicitta. For the second vow, cutting off vexations, we have renunciation. How do we deliver sentient beings and how do we cut off vexations? This is accomplished with the third vow, mastering all approaches to dharma, entering all dharma gates as we have it. Through cultivating the dharma, we can benefit others and cut off our own vexations. So we see by this that bodhicitta and renunciation are inherent in fulfilling the vows. When we fulfill the first three vows, then we are fulfilling the fourth vow, attaining Buddhahood. While practicing the four great vows may be difficult, to fulfill them is to manifest bodhicitta in the most concrete way. Sometimes we recite the vows without really meaning them. When we take these vows, we should say them from the depths of our heart so that we actually mean it. Some people fear making vows because they think that the vows are too lofty for them to accomplish. They should know that the vows at least give us a direction and a path, and we try to fulfill them according to our own abilities and at our own pace. Uh, this, is, this is how vows work and why they're so important. To give us a direction and a path. It's not a matter of doing it perfectly. We're not going to, but to set our intention makes all the difference. He continues, People tell me to take it easier, to stop running around in the world lecturing and teaching, to retire. But I have not yet repaid my debts, and I have not yet fulfilled my vows. Therefore, I will continue beyond the limitations of this life, until I fulfill the vow of Buddhahood. Beyond that, I rely on my body to take care of itself. My mind is at ease. Even though my body is aging, I can still drag it around and make use of it. So, if you can, give rise to bodhicitta to help others. And if you give rise to genuine renunciation, your vexations will also decrease. continues, I have a student who told me she does not think she can become a Buddha. When I heard this, I assumed that it was because she did not believe she possessed Buddha nature. But then she said, Chitgarbha Bodhisattva made a vow to deliver all the sentient beings in hell before becoming a Buddha. In that case, who am I to think about becoming a Buddha? There are many sentient beings that need help, 
I want to help them before I can think about becoming a Buddha. Kishtagarbha uh, Bodhisattva, it's the, the Sanskrit name, and has um, made this incredible vow to, to empty hell. That, that's his vow. We know Kshitagarbha as Jizo. This is the, you know, the, the Japanized uh, form of the Chinese name for this Bodhisattva. But what an, what an extraordinary vow. Because if you, obviously if you've got empty, going to empty hell, you've got to live there. And think of people who who um, uh, go to the to the worst places to help others. People like uh, doctors without borders, sending medical people into to the worst war zones, the, the poorest, most um, distressing environments. These really are. Um, Sort of avatars of um, Kshitagarbha Bodhisattva. So she, in fact, she seems to be saying um, uh, that um, she can't become a Buddha, but in fact, she's expressing her bodhisattvic aspiration. There are so many sentient beings that need help. I want to help them before I can think about becoming a Buddha. He continues, I realized that then that in fact she had really given rise to bodhicitta. Free from self-preoccupation, she was more concerned with other people's welfare. When a person can truly generate bodhicitta, that person's life and character will be transformed. They will have less fixation and more compassion for others. So when we generate body-mind, even if we are not enlightened, we are in accordance with Buddha Dharma. And he tells the story about another student, someone who had been studying with him for over 10 years, who stopped coming to the center and stopped coming along to retreats. And uh, when, he, when he showed up, up again after some time, Master Sheng Yin asked him what had happened. And he replied, very honestly, I feel I have learned everything you could teach me, so I didn't feel like coming anymore. I replied, yes, my dharma is quite shallow, but coming here isn't just about learning something. Other people can use your help. When he heard this, he realized that he could be useful and started to come again. So in either case, by giving rise to bodhicitta, these two people benefit others. Having bodhicitta, one can establish affinities with other beings and help them. If I cannot teach you the proper dharma, that is to my shame, but it is still good for you to arouse bodhicitta and help others, so long as there is no arrogance. So from now on, when you sit, I wish all of you would make vows. Then he gives he he uh, sets out the four vows as they as they chant them in um, in the Dharma drum tradition. I vow to deliver all sentient beings, all beings without number. I vow to liberate. I vow to cut off endless fixations. 
blind, endless blind passions I vow to uproot. I vow to master all approaches to the Dharma. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate. I vow to attain supreme Buddhahood, the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. If you feel that these four great vows are too lofty, then you can make a smaller vow of at least keeping your method before you at all times and not lose it. Similarly, you can make vows in the midst of activity, such as, as uh, may I walk and be free from vexations, or when I see small creatures, may I give rise to compassion. In all activities, we can generate vows to guide such activities. Generating vows is bodhicitta. Generating compassion is bodhicitta. Being free from vexation is bodhicitta. And it is also renunciation and wisdom. Back to our um, text. So um, that was a rather long footnote on Dawei's statement: "Fools remove objects, but don't obliterate mind. The wise wipe out mind without removing objects." Since in all places there is no mind, all objects of differentiation are non-existent of themselves. Things are not the problem. The problem is the way that we, uh, through our attaching and rejecting to things, reify them, make them fixed when in fact they are all part of the flux, the flow of this, this great river of, of our world. Think here of the, the lines that we chant every morning when we do affirming faith in mind. If you would walk the highest way, do not reject the sense domain, for as it is, whole and complete, the sense world is enlightenment. That's a, also a very good summing up of uh, Shikantaza as a practice. For as it is, whole and complete, the sense world is enlightenment. You don't have to go somewhere else to find it, to some special environment or rarefied place. The, the, we also chant in the mornings the Metta Sutta and um, it ends with this um, statement about um, a person of true insight um, 
is not born again into this world. And it's important that we understand, at least, least from the point of view of the Mahayana, that, that what that means, it's not li literally not born again into this world, but um, not born again into the world of attachment and picking and choosing. And a world in which we create birth and death through our attachments and aversions. So again, he's, he says, um, since in all places there's no mind, all kinds of ab objects of differentiation are non-existent of themselves. And our renunciation, you could say that our, our renunciation comes out of our seeing this more and more clearly, that um, th the, the things of this world are uh, insubstantial, impermanent and therefore um, not to be clung to or rejected. Continues. Worldly people these days, though, are quick to want to understand Chan. They think a lot about the scriptural teachings and the sayings of the patriarchal teachers, wanting to be able to explain clearly. They are far from knowing that this clarity is nonetheless an unclear matter. If you can penetrate the word mu, you won't have to ask anyone else about clear and unclear. I teach gentlemen of affairs, worldly people, you could say here again, to let go and make themselves dull. This is the same principle. And it's not bad to get first prize in looking dull either. I'm just afraid, afraid you'll hand in an empty paper. What a laugh. So, um, Da Hui, um, you know, is always the contrarian, always trying to um, uh, up, upset the apple cart, you could say. By saying things up to up upside down and back to front. So first he criticizes worldly people. What he what he has actually in the text is gentlemen of affairs. Um, so people want to they want a quick a quick. Um, fix, you could say. They want to understand Chan, get it. And he says they think a lot about the scriptural teachings and the sayings of the patriarchal teachers, wanting to be able to explain clearly. So they're already moving to wanting to have somehow have grasped these texts so that then they can spout forth on them. They are far from knowing that this clarity is nonetheless an unclear matter. What, what, what does he mean by this? There's two, there's two, at least two possibilities. He may just be saying that um, the, 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 the clarity of, of the 
teaching is not clear for these guys, these, these uh, worldly people, just saying that. It's unclear for them, the people he's talking about. But th- there's another way you can also understand this. Uh, think of... Um, In the Denko Roku, there's a there's a verse. It's probably the maybe the most well-known verse in the in the Denko Roku. It's case number six. This is um, a collection um, by Master Keizan, who was uh, three generations after Master Dogen, so Japanese um, Zen master. And Keizan says, um, though we find clear waters ranging to the vast blue sky in autumn, how can it compare to the hazy moon on a spring night? Most people want to have it pure white, but sweep as you will, you cannot empty the mind. So comparing the truth here to a, a hazy moon, Why? What's going on here? Surely all the all the talk in the all the different traditions is about the clear light, realizing that enlightenment. But no, there's also this aspect that is hazy. This, this clarity is nonetheless an unclear matter. If you can penetrate the word mu, you won't have to ask anyone else about clear and unclear. I teach gentlemen of affairs to let go and make themselves dull. This is the same principle. And it's not bad to get first prize in looking dull either. I'm just afraid you'll hand in an empty paper. What a laugh. So again, we come back to this this um, uh, a willingness that is required of us to for things not to be clear, for us to 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 be unclear, to not know. My teacher would sometimes say to me in Doksan, "Become a move fool." Enter into not knowing. Let go of your um, preconceptions, your all that you know, all that you've ever read about Mu, about the Dharma. A questioning mind is an open mind. We were talking yesterday about um, uh, Keats's negative capability. To be in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. We do tend to take refuge in fact and reason and it's it's not it's understandable because it's a it's a place <coughs> that um, in many many ways 
is a refuge where we can take refuge in certain circumstances, just that doesn't help us with the great matter of birth and death. All the different um, mystical traditions emphasize this this um, need to go into a place of not knowing. Hadrat Ali um, said, whoever gives up saying I don't know has been mortally stricken. Cutting oneself off from life to abandon I don't know. Or, or Rumi, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. Or Master EQ, I never get lost because I don't know where I'm going. Wendell Berry said, it may be that we no longer know what to do that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. The, the final quote I have in this little, little um, collection of of quotes about not knowing, it comes from uh, Jorge Luis Borges, and it's particularly pertinent to this process of um, entering the great doubt. Lost, as water is lost in water. like to um, turn again to um, Master Sheng Yin um, where he talks a little bit about um, Gongan practice, Koan practice because this practice is, is um, really tailored to um, helping us to enter into a place of not knowing. He says that Gungan, literally public case, is an account of a particular incident that occurred between 
Chan masters or a master and disciple. Some are composed from ancient Indian stories of early Buddhism. Typically, a gongan does not make everyday sense. The participants in the story are not using ordinary logic. They are not talking common sense, yet between the two of them, there is a very clear communication. The reader or meditator has the task of penetrating the meaning of that communication. A huado is usually a phrase or sentence from such a story. Remember, the huado is the, is the nub or the, the essence. So it's, it's what the, the story boils down to in terms of one's working on it and one's practice. So for the koan mu, mu is the huado, and it's extracted from the story, the longer story about the monk asking the Buddha, about asking Joshua about whether the dog has Buddha nature. Some huadoes are made up on the spur of the moment or can be blunt questions such as, Who are you? In Song Dynasty China, gungans and huadoes became important means of training large bodies of monks and monasteries. Some teachers referred to this pra practice as using poison to extract poison. <laughs> using poison to extract poison. But many of us who've worked on koans can relate to this um, description of them as poison. Strong medicine. And, and taking medicine isn't always pleasant. Medicines are often bitter. Sometimes an insight into a gongan or huado may trigger an enlightenment experience and the method is therefore considered to be a key to enlightenment. There are many gongans that have been compiled into collections with a commentary. When teachers present a practitioner with a huado, there is usually no talk of levels of use. The huado is to be approached directly, immediately, and should yield an instantaneous response. Yet many people, especially practitioners in the West, find this confusing. If a master says, go and investigate the wado, a practitioner may well go off and try to do so, but actually she may have no idea what, is, what to do and waste a lot of time. I would therefore um, like to present this practice in terms of four levels of use. Now, um, some people find the idea of levels helpful, others don't. Um, and of course, everybody's practice is is uh, is different. But um, these some people may may find these these helpful to understand how to um, work with a koan and become more intimate with it. So the first um, stage he he describes as repeating the huado or the koan. A master gives a student a huado to practice on but normally it remains pretty meaningless to the student. He cannot question it so he just repeats it much as he would if he were re reciting a mantra. Such a practice is useful because it at least calms the mind and brings it from a scattered to a more focused state. 
Furthermore, such simple repetition may induce strange or wondrous experiences. This again is like a person who evokes a powerful response through mantra practice, but one that must not be confused with enlightenment. Then he goes to the second possible stage, questioning the wado. When you repeat a wado, a question may appear in your mind. It may occur to you to ask who is repeating the wado. Such a question amounts to a wado in its own right. Once such a question comes into clear focus, you could stay with it, not switching from one to another. You are still repeating the wado, but following it with an inquiring mind. So when the the, the um, bringing of the, the koan to mind um, is accompanied by a sense of inquiry or curiosity. Then the third stage he lists is great doubt. When the practitioner feels an urgent need to understand the huado and to answer the question, the great doubt arises. There is now more or less an obsession with the question. You continue asking and asking with great earnestness and resolve. This is where one comes to be really seeing the value in doing it night and day, which we ha have the opportunity to do when we're in a Sashin environment. You continue asking and asking with great earnestness and resolve. The mind is so filled with the question that eventually the whole universe appears as one gigantic question. This is then called the great mass of doubt. The universe itself is the huado, is mu. This is the level to which the Chinese apply the term tsan. This is a, a word meaning investigate. Investigate. Move into not knowing, profound not knowing. Not thinking about something, but looking. And then the fourth stage he lists is watching the wado. He says, actually this level can be said to apply only to those who have already seen the nature and already had some glimpse of their Buddha nature. When a person has had an enlightenment experience, that does not mean that she or he is completely or permanently enlightened. Even for those with some experience of Kensho, there remains the necessity for further cultivation, deepening one's practice. Watching the Huado ensures that the power of practice does not fade. The Huado is simply called to mind and allowed to evoke what it will. It may be that experiences get deeper and deeper, or it may be that they are just like bubbles that rise and disperse in a running brook. For some people, the basic Huado may become their fundamental practice for the rest of their lives. I think it's important to understand that, that um, these, these koans that we take up, um, we're never finished with them. They, they are, um, uh, ha there is no end to them. They're bottomless. Actually, in Korea, the, the main practice 
is um, the, the practice of what is this, uh, and uh, when one continues to do it, even after having had an insight, usually. So, and just... Um, For the sake of, of balance here, we're just going to finish up with um, a little bit about um, Shikantaza. And again, um, Master Shengyun presents presents um, different levels. We're just going to look at the first of these. Um, I think it, it can make it can make Shikantaza a little more uh, approachable. His way of, of teaching it because. Um, uh, it's 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 a such a subtle practice that it can be hard to get one's get one's mind around it. But he prevent, presents it in a way that is 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 quite accessible. Not just being told to go and just sit. My approach to teaching silent illumination—that's the Mo Jiao, the Chinese term for it. Uh, may differ slightly from that of other teachers. I teach it from the viewpoint of three levels of difficulty. If I did not do this, then beginners here might find it too difficult. Yet I will also be careful not to bore the experts. I will present certain gradations of practice. Beginners can start at the simplest level, but if you happen already to be at a deep level, there will be nothing to stop you going right there. However, in deep water you need to be able to swim, so take care. I can summarize the first level by saying, pay attention only to yourself sitting. This is the bit that we've heard before. Just sit. You need to place your attention precisely within that very body which is now sitting on the cushion beneath you. It is important to have a feeling of the totality of that body's experiencing. We do not focus on particular parts, the hands, feet, face, nose, posture, as such, nor especially on the breathing, nor on the location of the breathing sensation, but on the total integrated awareness of bodily presence. To do this, you must be relaxed, yet at the same time alert. Be sure that your posture is completely correct in one of the orthodox styles of sitting. Well aligned, he's talking about. Unless this is so, the body will not be well balanced, and the inequalities and in muscle tension will develop in different parts of the body, gradually producing distortions and mental agitation. When I tell people to relax, there is always somebody who overdoes it and at once begins to feel drowsy. On the other hand, when I tell people not to be lazy, there is always someone who tenses up his body and mind until he begins to wonder why he feels stressed. It is vital, therefore, to find a point of balance between relaxation and alertness. We were talking yesterday about 
um, the two extremes of dullness and restlessness. So um, dullness is, the, is going too far along the, the relaxation axis and restlessness comes about if one goes too far along the alertness axis. So finding a balance between these two, bringing them into balance. As I have said before, it's like catching a feather on a fan. It takes a certain alertness and discernment. Whenever you feel lazy and you need to bring up some energy, check your posture and make, posture and make the mind bright. Check your posture and make the mind bright. Sit tall and, and pay attention. Whenever you feel stressed or fatigued, examine yourself to see whether you are putting too much tension into your body or holding the posture too rigidly. It is not only the body that needs to find the point of balance in a relaxed alertness, but the mind needs to do the same. The mind needs to be clear about what you're doing, neither drowsy nor drifting in a vague haze, nor sitting in a blank stupor. You need to be alert, aware and present, but neither tense nor preoccupied by an intention to do well or by some regret. Well, our time is up. Um, we'll stop here and recite four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org. Dot org dot nz